0: Welcome to an inspirational Sunday message from Found Church. We hope you will be challenged and encouraged while listening to this message. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our church website, foundchurch.co.uk, or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram how I'm going to manage to preach this sermon at quarter to 11. But I'm going to do my best uh, this morning. I'm just saying it's quarter to 11 in case you think I finished late. Shall I just uh, throw that out there? Okay, so Acts 17 and verse 16. I was going to be continuing our service, our series with Jesus in the upper room, but today is a baptismal service, second service of two people getting baptized, and so I've changed and going to share something from this passage. So if you'd like to read with me in Acts chapter 17, a little bit of background is Paul's been in Thessalonica, he's been there for three successive Sabbaths, he's preaching the synagogue with some success according to verse 4. And how, however, the Jews were jealous. They rounded up some ruffians, uh, formed a mob, and uh, started a riot. They accused Paul and his companions of causing trouble all over the world. They dragged a man called Jason from his house, uh, presumably thinking Paul had stayed there. Jason had to get bail before he was cleared. From there, they went to Berea, and uh, there they went to synagogue again with some success. And uh, unfortunately, the people from Thessalonica actually went to Berea. And that's incredible. They went 50 miles because of an issue. Imagine walking 50 miles because of an issue. They were so annoyed that they went there uh, to great lengths uh, to try and and, uh, stop Paul and and his companions from doing what they were doing. So Paul and them were sent to the coast. And uh, a, a distance of about 20 miles. And then brought to Athens, which is where our, our, our story begins. And whether Paul went there walking, perhaps 100 miles, it's about the length of the West Highland Way, or by boat, uh, Silas and Timothy left in Berea, and Paul is waiting for them in Athens. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Athens. It's a magnificent city, uh, you will know. And uh, it's got a famous Acropolis and Mars Hill. But Athens was no longer at the height uh, of its glory. Uh, Things had changed uh, five centuries before it had been at at the height of its uh, uh, empire. And Athens at that time had lost its empire, lost its wealth, and probably the size of Athens in those days was around 10,000 people. But it had retained its reputation for philosophy, and it still had a leading university. So there were some things. So now Paul is in Athens, and I'm going to read from Verse 16. When well, Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the greatest ideas. That's quite a statement. eh? Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in everywhere you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. What a statement. What a a, a ramp for a preacher to to come from. Then he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not it live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Abaris, and a number of others. Amen, and may God bless the reading of his word. So here's Paul in Athens, and uh, I want to say, first of all, for Paul, it was a place of agony and misery. The Bible says he was greatly distressed because he saw all these idols round about. The city was full of idols. I mean, I don't know if you people watch. I don't know if you look around our town, our city, read the, the, uh, the, the, the newspapers. Like, I was, was a campaign a number of years ago. It was called Pray With Your Eyes Open. I don't know what we see when we look around and see our community. I wonder if we, if we see things that cause us pain like it caused Paul pain. I wonder if we see injustice, poverty, crime, confusion, broken families, Things like that. I thank God for people who help us see things in our community and larger in the, in the whole of the, the country. I look at uh, ministries like the Christian Institute, CARE, and to some degree Citizen Go. And they help us to understand what's going on in our culture today. We had a fantastic day yesterday with our leaders in Aberdeen and Dr. Amy Ord Ewing was telling us about the state of our nation. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of going to Edinburgh. I was invited along to a meeting in Edinburgh. And uh, the speaker was from the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. It happened on the 25th of October that was there. And uh, one of the speakers said this. He said, here is a snapshot of the psyche in the UK at this moment in time. Psychologically, we're narcissistic. We're emotionally anxious. Philosophically, relativist. Spiritually peace hungry, religiously wary, physically weary and declining, operationally atheist, financially pressured, socially tribal, sexually fluid, politically polarized, technologically accelerating and also dehumanizing, skeptical and posturally sceptical and self righteous. I thought he was spot on. I thought, what an insight into where we're at at this moment in time. And when Paul looked around Athens, he said it was a place of agony and a place of misery. It was also a place of idolatry. And if you were familiar with what was going on at that particular time, I remember some of you might have, like myself, done Latin at school. had a great Latin teacher after a while. She's a bit of a character to start with. She used to pull her hair and, and uh, throw things. Like, how's that going in the school today? I mean, I still remember. That's why well, I've got no hair, I would think. like I, mean, I remember going out, she took a hold of my hair, and she went, did is the sign of the perfect tense. No, it wasn't. It was bobus bit. It was Bobit. So it was my scarf that she did that with. Took my hair and went, bobus bit, bimus bit is boont. I mean, look what's happened. I mean, I, so that's what she did. I mean, it was crazy. But I remember, it was effective, like. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know if we should still be doing stuff like that, but, uh, Maybe safeguarding wasn't quite what it is today. But, uh, but one of the things that we learned was that, and it was the same in the Greek situation, is there were different gods for different situations. So if you were in love, you went and prayed to the goddess of love offered sacrifices to the goddess of love. If you were going to war, you prayed to the god of war, etc., etc., etc. And for a Jew, of course, that's out of the question. Because we're monotheistic, we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Bible condemns idolatry. And, and Isaiah goes to great lengths, for example, in Isaiah 40. That he, he speaks about the God that we serve, that, he, that he's like a shepherd who gathers up the, the, the lambs in his arms. There's a huge difference between the God that we serve and idols. You've got to carry idols, but our God carries us. How good is that? And verse 12 in Isaiah 40 speaks about the creative power, the majesty and the wisdom of God. And it says that Lebanon, with all its cedars, and with all its animals is and, 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 and not sufficient to sacrifice to our God. And then he says, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlaid it with gold and fashioned silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman, sets up an idol that will not topple. And so he goes on. And he speaks about the fallacy of setting up idols. And if you think that's something of the past, there's a number of years ago, I had the privilege of, of visiting India. And, 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 and to my amazement, I found that there are 330 million gods in, 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 in India. And you would go down street corners and there little places that, where, where offerings were made and, and stuff like that. And I remember being there during a particular festival and, and the drums were beaten at night and, and, and it was oppressive. It was... It was it was really, really dark. And, and, and that goes on in, in our world today. And when it went back in those days of Paul, it, it, was a, it was a place of idolatry with all these different gods. It was also a place of opportunity. Because despite his agony and despite the idolatry, it led Paul to do something about it. So he reasoned. He wasn't afraid of the culture of the day. He took on the culture of the day. And all my family will be very wary now, wondering what I'm going to say next. But it's okay, you can take a chill pill, it's all right. But uh, despite the fact that he had to leave Berea because of opposition, he was not going to compromise what he believed or water down his beliefs. He reasoned in the synagogue. He reasoned in the marketplace and the agora of the day. And and, uh, the gospel had to go out into all these places, so, so he took it as a place of opportunity, and he took it on head on, and uh, today the gospel needs to go out, it does, it, the gospel is just not for every single person who comes to church, it's for the people who don't come to church, so we've got to build a bridge, it, it, it reaches out to, to, to those who do not know uh, the Lord. I believe God's got a message today for the religious community in Scotland. And Jim Simbala summarized that that very very well recently when I went to hear him through in in, in Cumbernauld. He says he believes there's a mandate to the church in Scotland today to preach the word, to proclaim the gospel, and to pray. And to that I say amen. Three of you said amen as well, but there you go. That's what I believe. And notice he did it day after day. That shows it was a conviction. It wasn't a convenience thing. It was part of his DNA. It was part of his value system. Well, it was also a place of controversy because a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So who were the Epicureans and who were the Stoics? Well, the Epicureans believed that pleasure was the chief goal. And the Stoics emphasized man's rational abilities and individual self-sufficiency. And they called him a babbler, which is an interesting word. It's a word for birds picking up grain. It's a word for scrap collectors picking up junk. It's a it's a word for people who read other people's philosophy, don't really understand it, and then trot it out to other people. And it's a word for ne'er do wells. You understand what that is, Alec? Okay. I'm not calling you one, like, because I believe you're a great guy, like, but you but you understand what that means. <laughs> Brilliant, love it. But but it, it's, it's, it was an insulting term. They didn't understand his message. What is this babbler trying to say? And you know, friends, I think one of the challenges for us, uh, living when we live today, is to understand what our culture thinks so that we can minister to the culture in the right way. That we don't change the gospel, because the gospel cannot change. The gospel is the gospel, I was speaking to a man a couple of weeks ago at a, fun- at, at a football. He said, I've been to three funerals this week. He said, I've been to two Christian funerals and one non-Christian funeral. He says, there's a difference. And he, he offered this. He says, a difference between Christian funerals and non-Christian funerals. Of course there is, because there's hope. Of course there is. And, but he says, the challenge might be today, is what about what about the churches, what about people now that are disconnected from the church? He says, how would they know how to get in contact with a minister? It, it, it struck me. It, it challenged me, I thought. What a challenge, eh? What a challenge. So we could be the bridge, could we? We could be the bridge into the situation. So we should not assume what's going on in our, in our nation. At our pastoral meeting, we have one every Monday morning over Zoom. And talk about the weekend and what we could do better and, what, and different things. And we're talking about how we build up our families in the church. It's a big challenge to us, so that we can then help and be a model and a light to those outside. Society's changed massively. I remember going to a chaplain's conference eight years ago, and I wrote down some notes, and the guy was speaking about how much our country had changed. In, in, in recent years beginning in the 1950s and he took that as a starting point as a base point and he says Sunday school diff- attendance was over 50 percent and it's now four percent that's what he said eight years ago it's a starting point's different isn't it how you minister to people the people have a knowledge and an understanding if there's 50 percent going along the church they know some stuff but if there's only four they don't really know much about it like and, and when chaplaincy began in the 1980s, he was saying there were so many young people a, a, a year were, were leaving the, the, the church. And he went on to speak about other things. The word homophobia was first used in 1981 in the times. He, he speaks about uh, the first purpose-built mosque was in walking in the 19th century, in the second and the 1920s. And by the 1980s, there were still just a handful. And then he spoke about VHS and Betamax, which some folk here will not have a clue about. But there were recorders. It was how you recorded your, your, your TV things. But, but think about it then, and I was just thinking, that was a leap. But to where we're at now, AI, gender, sexuality issues, wokeism. I mean, things are, are changing dramatically, aren't they, in our nation? And I love to pay attention to trends and uh, I was really interested in, in, in a podcast I was listening to recently, and, and, and what, what interested me was the fact that new atheism has gone into decline. I was encouraged by that. Stephen and I are both encouraged by that. I hope we'll all be encouraged by that, that new atheism has gone into decline. And that people are more open to things spiritually. And I had written this down, and Dr. Amy R. Ewan said exactly the same thing. And I'm claiming to be Amy R. But 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 I'm realizing what's going on in our nation, that people are more open to spirituality than they are. I'm not saying they're open to the gospel. I'm not saying revival, although I believe it there's a start of a move of God in our nation, and I've got reasons for believing that. But they misunderstood what he was proclaiming. This say, other says he seems to be advocating foreign gods because he was preaching about the good news in Je- of Jesus and the resurrection. And the Greek word for resurrection is Anastasis. And, and, and so, as a result of that, they thought that was another god. It also became a place of curiosity. So they took him and they invited him to this council, the Areopagus, which was the council of Aria. Uh, sorry, Ares, the god of thunder and war. And apparently it first met for murder trials, but now it was the chief judicial body uh, of the city. It met to exercise jurisdiction in matters such as religion and education. And then it became a place of clarity. And it began with that great text that I see you had a statue to an unknown God, but I want to declare to you what that unknown God... I thought, what a great line for a preacher. I just love his courage. Do you? Love his courage. He stands up there. In front of these people. I love his connection. I love how he connects with these people of the day. You know, if people say we should have our Bible in one hand and read the paper in another. And, and Jesus connected with people. He connected with people all the time. And we can learn from Jesus. We need to learn from Jesus. And, and he, he begins by commending them. You know, he could, he could have begun by condemning them for their idolatry. I've just mentioned what it was like. He could have begun that way. He could have begun by quoting a whole dose of scriptures at them. But do you know what he did? He found common ground. He, he understood where they were coming from. And, and, and he, 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 used their, he used their own poets to, to, to tell a story. It's incredible what he did here. You know, we, I think we need to, to see every single person that we come across in life as a person for whom Christ died. And, and, and Phil Yancey in his book Vanish in Grace, he says that it makes a huge difference whether I treat a non-believer as someone who is wrong rather than someone who is on the way but lost. I like that. And, 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 and I, I can think back to some of the things that I've said and some of the ways I've said it and, and, and actually I'm very ashamed sh- to admit that, it, that I've been arrogant in days gone past. I'm right and you're wrong. And Cyril Gorgeson says, having spent time understanding their religious and philosophical beliefs, he begins his message by finding a bridge to their, to their idolatry with the unknown God. But he goes on to say, if you're going to build a bridge with people, you need to start building it at their end. So he, he, he takes their poets, and one other commentator says, it's like he baptizes them and, and uses them. And then he makes this declaration, God is a creator. Hallelujah. I thank God that it, 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 I'm, it, I'm not just a blob that crawled out of somewhere from nothing, but I thank God that I'm made in the image of God, and so are you. The heavens declare the glory of God; it, it says that the heavens de- it, it show His divine power in nature. And basically, we've two options: chance or a creator. That the, the, the universe arose out of nothingness during the Big Bang, which means that nothing must have somehow turned into something, or it. Blo- or design points to a designer. And creation points to a creator. And he goes on to speak about how the God is the Lord and sustainer. the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built by hand. This building is not the church. We are the church. And then it's God as director. And this is a profound verse. I love this verse. It's one of my favorite verses Acts 17, 26. That from one man he made every, every nation... And, and it goes on to say, he determined the exact times, the exact places we should live in a time. Hey, you are alive for such a time as this. That's a wonderful thing to know that. Brings lots of reassurance uh, into my mind. And, and, and so, so he's, he's telling them about their lostness and, he's, and he's, he's telling them about a God who wants to be found. And a God who's looking for them, which is wonderful, like a, lost, like a good shepherd lo- looking for the lost sheep. And he invites us to seek him. You know, If you were to Google, why are we here, you would get somewhere like 640 million results in less than half a second, ranging from the philosophical to the cynical, and quoting Monty Python and the Simpsons. These great theologians of our day. But we're we're here because God purposed that we would be here. And like Esther of old, we've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he tells them who God is. Wonderful. And Google had a very popular quote some time ago. It says, philosophy is like being in a dark room and looking for a black cat. Metaphysics is like being in a dark room and looking for a black cat that isn't there. Theology is like being in a dark room and looking for a black cat that isn't there and shouting, I found it. And science is like being in a dark room and looking for a black cat using a flashlight. And the the comparison from that is science has got it right and theology has got it wrong. But I tell you, that's not true. It's not true at all. The theology is the queen of the sciences. I believe that with all my heart. And so science might, might, might answer some of the questions, but it doesn't answer the why, does it? Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is that something so beautiful and so orderly? You know, I, I just thank God that, that, we, that we're not swimming about in some kind of sea of nothingness. Bono was asked how he could possibly believe in Christianity in the midst of the secular world of rock and roll. He said, Jesus has satisfied his own search for meaning and giving him causes to pursue beyond celebrity and pleasure. And he's right. So he's recognizing that God has done that for him. And then goes on to speak... About God as judge. But now he's commanded all people everywhere to repent. And the band can come now because what time is, is finishing. But he says he now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he set a day when he will judge the world. That's, a, that's an awesome prospect, friends. And there's so much things that we could say about that. And he's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. So everything hinges on the resurrection, doesn't it? Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, we also will live. And there's so much we could say about that. And believe you me, I've got plenty of notes here that I could quote scripture after scripture about these things. But, but, but this is the thought. He set a day when he will judge the world. And he's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection is so key. The resurrection is so pivotal. But one day, you and I are going to have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. That is a sobering thought. It makes me think every day that, that I've got to live every day with purpose. And with, with a realization that one day I'm going to stand before him. A, 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 a few months ago, maybe a year and a bit ago, I went along to Larbert to their, to their, uh, midweek service to take it. I'm doing it this week and, and others like John and Stephen and others do that from this church. One day I took a tape line and a tape measure and, and, and I, and I cut off 70 as three score years and 10, right? Or I folded it back at 70 and then 80 and 90. And then I put my age in there and cut it off. Boy, what a, what a shocker, huh? Hey, when you get over 60 and you cut that off, you haven't got a lot of tape left, have you? I mean, if it's 70, bro. If it's 80 or if it's 90, there's not a lot left. But it's a challenging thought. And the older they get, the more you think about this, about about one day I'm going to have to stand before God and give an account of my life. and And, and so all laid it bare before. Every single one of us. I tell you, friends, the decisions we make, we need to make them in light of eternity. Whatever decisions, our relationship issues, our time issues, our talents issues, our treasure issues, we should make them all in the light of eternity. Because one day, one day we're going to have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. Well, as he preached that and Thank you for listening. We hope you've been challenged and inspired please feel free to contact us through our website foundchurch.co.uk or you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.